circumstances while I was even in high school led me into that. And I chose that as a preference over playing with my, my buddies and into varsity level basketball, but it all worked out. I have no regrets. Well, I'm glad you're joining us this morning. Uh, as you can see, everybody, welcome to the Keeping the Nostalgia Live show. I'm your host, Billy Powell. And here we are with Lanny Sego. Um, the you can check out he does interviews on the ISC Sports Network, which you can go to iscsportsnetwork.com. Uh, and you can uh, subscribe to some fabulous interviews. I was just looking at some of them yesterday and preparing for this interview. Uh, uh, Jan Connor, Ralph Taylor, uh, Dick Atha. Um, so please go to that. Now, uh, once you go, once we get done with this interview, you can look down in the little box there and I'll have the link for it. But uh, uh, Lanny Siegel, thanks for taking some time this morning uh, to help keep the nostalgia alive. Thank you. And you realize now, and I want to prepare you, that my interest in interviewing, I may turn the cards on you and I may wind up asking you some questions. Hey, you know, that's fine. I, I you know, but normally when that happens, I, I, I just kind of uh, don't shut up. I, I, I love I love my uh, uh, memories of the game or, you know, of uh, sports throughout my life. So, yeah, good memories. You know, I was thinking this morning. Um, as you know, so many chance encounters, you then do some investigative research on people who you just met and you learn their background. And I'm thinking if you or I wrote a book and maybe you have, it would be the paths that we've crossed. And I think uh, today with the snow outside and challenging conditions, I remember the, the first high school basketball game that I was dispatched to cover in 1974, was traveling on a night like we had two nights ago from Rensselaer to Royal Center, Indiana, to cover a great matchup that was built up between Pioneer and North Judson. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking as I'm coming home in this blizzard, I'm getting paid $10 as a stringer to just file reports for the Rensselaer radio station to cover this matchup between North Judson. They had an outstanding basketball player by the name of Fred Eckert who wound up going to uh, Dayton to play and uh, the Grandstaff brothers uh, at Pioneer. And talking about our, the paths that we've crossed, the athletic director who was so gracious that night, who squeezed me into a sold out gymnasium there at Pioneer was Lee Aldridge. And I'm not sure, uh, I'm, I gather that you're an IU basketball fan. Lee Aldridge was an outstanding basketball player in the 1955 season for Switch City. And they were beaten in the semi-state by New Albany. Lee Aldridge winds up getting a full scholarship to Indiana University to play for Branch McCracken. And he was a sophomore the senior season of Halle Bryant. And Lee Aldridge is now retired. He had been the head basketball coach at Pioneer and later the athletic director, giving it up in 1969 to a player by the name of Doug Reed, who had been an assistant coach at Muncie Central as these stories go on. And Reed 
prepped at Frankfurt High School and was a member of the Indiana High School All-Star team uh, with the Van Arsdales. So that's what I'm talking about, the paths that we've crossed. Um, I think Lee is now regretting the fact if he's still wintering in Dallas, Texas, wintering in Dallas, Texas, but he's a member of the Track and Field Hall of Fame and just a great guy. And it just goes back to that chance meeting in 1974 when all I did was call him up and say, this is who I am. This is the radio station uh, directly west of Royal Center. And, uh, and can you squeeze me into this big ball game? And he got me in. We sat on folding chairs on the baseline. It was that full. And I'll, I'll never forget Lee Aldridge. But that's, that's the kind of experiences that you've had, that I've had. That's, that for me has really fulfilled my life. So now I'll volley back to you. You know, it's interesting you say that. It's all about six degrees of separation, isn't it? <clears throat> oh, absolutely. All the time. You and, know, because, go ahead. People ask me, uh, Billy, how do you know that guy? Well, I asked him who he was, having known a little bit about his background asked him questions and engaged in a conversation. And so that's how it all plays out. You know that you do it all the time. Yeah, my wife. I, okay. So it's interesting that you said whether or not he, uh, uh, the person you were talking about made the right choice by moving to Dallas, because currently right now we have uh, 3.5 million people in the state of Texas out of power. Um, but as you can see, I live in Houston now. I've been here for about 20 years. But uh, we have been lucky enough to have power. We don't have water. So I did take out the big bucket today and let all the snow that melted off go into the bucket. And that's how we're flushing toilets today. Just an interlist, this little fun fact there for today. Yeah, you know, I've had a brother who's uh, worked in civil engineering in the Dallas Metroplex area for many, many years. And this is the worst he's ever experienced. He lives in Lake Whitney now. But uh, just talked to him yesterday to make sure that he's okay. But uh, it, it sure is weird, yeah. you know, to think about everything that the kids have gone through with the pandemic. And now that they're able to have fans in the gym in a lot of locations, they got to encounter the weather. But that's all part of February and March in Indiana. Yes, it is. And, uh, you know, uh, it's kind of so I was sitting in the athletic director's office at Broderville High School. This is probably 84 or 85. And um, I had my dad despised sports. He just didn't understand it. He didn't enjoy it. And but he would tell me stories about going to the State Fair Coliseum and watching uh, the Pacers play in the ABA and about this guy named Rick Mount. So evidently, dad went to a game that really Rick Mount um, uh, really, you know, uh, made an impression on him. And so I'm sitting in the athletic director's office and the athletic director was Gene Ring, who played for Branch McCracken and was coached by John Wooden up at South Bend Central. So you kind of see how I'm soaking this stuff in. And this guy walks in and he goes, uh, uh, is Gene here? And I said, no, he'll be back in probably in the next half hour. He goes, well, I'm going to leave this for him. You tell him that Rick Mount stopped by. And of course, that was kind of one of my first kind of, a uh, uh, oh, my dad has told me about you. It's nice to meet you, blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, 25, 30, 35 years later, 
I get the opportunity to interview Rick Mount and, you know, it just, it, it, it waterfalls like that. Uh, and I'm assuming that waterfalls like that with you also. Well, you have to open up the door and that's what you did. That's what we all do. Uh, Rick Mount, my dad was a farmer and he bought seed from a seed dealer there uh, south of Remington where I grew up. And uh, Mr. Biddle had graduated from Purdue and was high up in their alumni. And so my dad leveraged Mr. Biddle to buy us season tickets when the new arena was opened. And all the years that Rick Mount was there, we had season tickets. And that on that dedication night, much like today, we had a winter storm. And my dad was not to be deterred. And we went, great experience. We actually sat in section 109 where there was a, a, a glitch in the ticketing and everybody had two seats, two butts in every one seat. And uh, we didn't move and they moved everybody else that had duplicate seating out of that section and accommodated them. But that's, that was just a part of that night. And it was just a great atmosphere. Um, never forget it. Tell me a little bit about Remington and, and uh, where you were born and raised. I mean, you know, of course I think of this, uh, the artist, Remington, when I, you know, when, when I've seen your posts and, uh, uh, uh something like that, and looking at your sweatshirt, I, there was an artist who did cowboys or, uh, horses, I think, Fred uh, Frederick Remington. Okay. Uh, but, but tell us about growing up and, and where the town was that you're at and kind of relation to like Indianapolis or, uh, uh Chicago or whatever. And, uh, tell us about growing up there. Well, Remington is 90 miles due south of Chicago on Interstate 65 and 90 miles north of Indianapolis on Interstate 65. And growing up, primarily, we got our television and radio out of Chicago. Uh, my dad was a farmer. We had five children. I had two older brothers and two younger sisters. And all of us had different interests. My two brothers had no interest in sports whatsoever. And I was just blessed to my selfish interest. I always loved sports. And I had a first cousin who was older than me, a bachelor. He was a career guy, a laborer on the Penn Central Railroad. It's kind of funny. He was an Indiana basketball fan. Terry Dishner was playing at Purdue at that time. And he influenced me and I became a Purdue basketball fan. So we, we battled over that. I was a Chicago White Sox fan, and my older cousin was a New York Yankees fan. I was a Purdue football fan, and my older cousin was a Notre Dame football fan. So a lot of people couldn't figure out how we clicked, but, but this cousin, whose nickname was Sheik, took me under his wings, and these were different times. He always had a nice television because he liked sports. That was his entertainment being a bachelor. So my dad would take me into his house to watch Indiana play or Purdue play sponsored by Chesty potato chips. And, uh, you know, I remember watching McCracken's team with Walt Bellamy and Jimmy rail and Tom Bollard and others. And on the other side, watching Purdue play 
beginning with uh, Terry Dishner, Tim McGinley, uh, Jerry Berkshire, Bobby Orrell, who was a Rhodes Scholar, uh, uh, and on and on and on. So anyway, uh, I had a basket that dad set up on the side of the crib. And there were some challenges, obviously, where they're related. So dad built me this uh, gymnasium. I called it my, uh, my cow palace up in our haymow or hayloft, some want to call it. And it was beautiful. And my cousin and I, who was two younger, two years older than me, who was kind of my taxi, uh, taking me to a lot of ball games when I didn't have a driver's license, we played endlessly, and uh, we'd play we'd play one on one, and the final score might be two hundred and ten to two hundred and six, and that's where I always uh, use the phrase "defense wins every time." But uh, my my older brother did have some buddies who were big basketball uh, fans, and it was just a gathering place. It was a wholesome atmosphere. And so we, pl we played basketball in my Haymow, uh, our Haymow, for quite a few years, and it's still there. I've posted some pictures uh, on Facebook of it. It's still there. And I, I laugh. My, did my dad used to complain a little bit. It was lit by one bulb. And he complained that the electricity bill was high because that bill burned that ball burning all the time. So, <laughs> uh, but it's, it's funny. I think, I think people watching this can relate to this from their youth. Uh, but I would in the fall buy virtually every preseason college basketball magazine. And of course they had it broken down into the best players north, south, east, west, and on and on and on. So I had this idea of wanting to be a radio broadcaster at a very young age. What if I take the best players from each region and develop my own imaginary league? So I would play by myself, call the games, and it might be, uh, I'm going to name drop here, Wayne Estes from Utah State, who died tragically in later years from electric, an, an accidental an electrocution. And then I would keep, obviously, I'm calling the play-by-play, -play, so I could decide in my mind who was going to win. And I had, a, I had this cardboard piece, and I laid out these teams, north, south, east, west, mid-east, midwest, and then I kept the standings. Believe it or not, the last time I, I took my grandson to see this hayloft because I wanted him to see the environment that I grew up in and where I played basketball, that cardboard attachment was still in the haymow from all those years. And we're talking 60 years, and it's still there. So um, I love basketball, and... I played my freshman, I went to a Catholic parochial school and, 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 I, and I'll share something and this is not a complaint on my part, it's, it's just the way it was. I went to a three room, eight grade Catholic school and it was made up of two communities. 
the principal community was where I grew up, Remington. And then there was a second uh, community that sent their Catholics to this Catholic uh, school, but their public school system would allow the Catholic grade school kids to play on their elementary grade school basketball teams. They allowed that. Where I went to high school later, their school system would not allow it. And really I was young and I don't remember why, uh, but that's the way it was. Didn't ask any questions. I did scratch my head when the next morning after they had had a game the night before, they would come back and be talking about their coach and in uh, a nice fashion in the game. And I'm thinking, I wonder, wonder why we can't do this. But fast forwarding, I was never introduced to organized basketball until I was a freshman. And so this was the first time anybody really defended and it was the first time I really had to learn organized plays. And so it was very difficult for me. Uh, it was a heck of an adjustment. And then I hope I don't talk too long here, William Powell, Billy, but uh, I grew up 12 miles away in Rensselaer with St. Joseph College. And they were a division two basketball program. It was an all boys school. And you would have to use a shoehorn to get another person in that field house. And my cousin, who was two years older than me, he and I, literally, if you can think about it, we had season tickets to St. Joseph College High School. So then later, I always wanted to be a radio broadcaster. There was a gentleman by the name of Bill Baylor, who was from our area. But at that time, he was with a radio station in Watsika, Illinois, WGFA. And they had primarily been an AM station. But in 1964, they converted to AM and FM. And he came over as a St. Joe grad, and he did about 10 or 12 of their games, some home, some away. So like we were talking very much earlier, I approached uh, Bill Baylor and told him who I was, what my interest was. And he really appreciated that. It took a liking to me. And he said, how would you like to sit with me and keep the scorebook and I'll let you go on the air and you introduce the starting lineups. I'll let you do the halftime scoring rundown and the postgame scoring. Oh boy. That just really fed my appetite. So then I thought after my freshman year, if I keep advancing and play high school basketball, I'm not going to be able to do the St. Joseph College basketball games with Bill Bayless. So if my sophomore, it would have been my sophomore year, I decided this means more to me than playing basketball. So that's the avenue I took. And so the rest is history. And, um, I remember we did a road game at Indiana State when they had uh, Holland Beck and Newsom. We, we just about upset them, meeting Clyde Lavellet, who was the sheriff of Vigo County at that time. Um, the trips to Evansville, you know, back then Evansville with those great A-Rad McCutcheon teams, being able to go there. Uh, so anyway, in my senior uh, 
high school newspaper, The Rifle Range, as their high school nickname was the Remington Rifles. As you know, you had to list what your goals were. So my goals were to be in radio, broadcast St. Joseph College basketball, and to broadcast Purdue sports, and possibly the Chicago White Sox sports. So in 1974, I was working at the Rensselaer radio station. It was a brand new startup operation and uh, was able to do St. Joseph College basketball from 1975 to 1980. We had some great teams and uh, did a heck of a lot of high school basketball. You know, as you know, at the grassroots radio level, high school sports is very important for revenue, uh, selling advertising, and so uh, I did a lot of games and traveled a lot of miles. But when I was with St. Joe, George Wagner was a head basketball coach uh, who, who is now retired in Florida, had been at Earlham, um, graduated from Slippery Rock. Uh, we played, we played non-conference games. One season, we played at Cincinnati, at Marquette, at Notre Dame. And so those were the type of experiences I had with St. Joseph College and, and doing that. And, and I, would, I would drive to Milwaukee to do the game that night or drive to Cincinnati and do that game that night and come back. I had to be back because I had to do the morning sports, which I got paid $5 for. So that's kind of a long answer. But uh, um, we had a lot of fun. We were... We were snowbound for five days during the 78 blizzard. St. Joseph, we left in a five-car caravan. Should never have left that afternoon. And I had, I, I was one of the drivers. They took my car. And we had to go to Lyle, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago, to play Illinois Benedictine. And the roads were already awful by the time we left Rensselaer. So we played the game, and of course, we've got to take the Tri-State back to 65, horrible conditions, and we get as far as Highway 30 and 65, and we're stopped by the state police saying we cannot go any further south. We will not get home that night. So we were taken. We left our vehicle. No, we were able to drive to the parking lot there at the what later became the Holiday Star Theater and uh, motel. Now people think because it had uh, an entertainment center, boy, that was a great place to be snowbound for five days. Well, that was Wednesday night through Sunday, and there were so many people. The motel was just absolutely, absolutely so gracious. There were those of us who had to stay in the hallway. Um, they fed us. I don't know that they ever got compensated, and I don't know how they kept up with the food delivery. We met and had so many great conversations with people that we never saw again after they released us from the motel to go home on Sunday. But uh, that, that was our experience in the blizzard of 78. And of course, we didn't have cell phones back then. So our families back in Rensselaer were concerned about what the heck had happened to us. And uh, I think, the radio station wound up letting everybody know what had happened to us. But uh, 
just a lot of fun, a lot of great experiences. And I'm, I'm a little bit windy here, but uh, that was my life growing up in Remington. I love Remington. You know, I saw Matt Painter on a, a Zoom interview I just watched over the weekend. And he talked about pride in your school, uh, pride in the hometown that you grew up in. And I grew up in a very small town, a uh, thousand people, it's about the same. And I have as much pride for that little town as I did back then. You know, it, 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 it's interesting that you say that because I feel the same way about my high school, Broderpool, and it's, you know, it's now been closed going on three years. And um, it, when you talk about the blizzard of 78, it's interesting what I was doing during the blizzard of 78 and what you were doing do, during uh, the blizzard of 78. And, you know, my dad got out the six, we had a neighbor who had a six man toboggan and my dad was on the front of it, pulling it. And we went down to Marsh grocery store while you, the, the drifts and everything else, and no one could drive. And we got food at the Marsh grocery store and came back on a six man toboggan. And my memories are solely are totally different than yours, but you probably look back on that now. And you, at that point in time, you, you may have wanted to, I mean, it, it, it's just wonderful memories uh, with your five days of being shut in. It had to be. Yeah. And I still have a lot of anxiety, uh, when I'm driving in bad weather, I really do. Um, I was, uh, my senior year in high school, we played the sectional over at South Newton, which is in, uh, between Goodland and Kentland, Kentland being on a, a highway 41, notably, but like a lot of consolidations, it was uh, on a county road. And my senior year, we go over there and I, I'm, I'm taking a buddy of mine, my sister and a girlfriend of hers and my dad's 1960 DeSoto again on a night that we should have never left home. And they recommended that everybody actually stay at the gym. Well, we headed out and I'll condense this story. We wound up staying with a, a cousin of mine uh, in nearby Goodland, Indiana en route back to Remington, which is east of there on 24. So that was the first time that I was ever snowbound, the second time in 78. And I, I, I want to be home when the weather is going to be bad. I really do. So anyway, um, I had this dream of wanting to Purdue, to, to, to do uh, Purdue sports. And I had, uh, you know, it's really funny. Billy, I don't know how it's worked out in your career, but, but I think sometimes all of us are motivated to take job advancements out of some peer pressure, peer pressure of what others think that we should be doing rather than doing your homework and making good decisions. Well, at this point in time, we're now talking March of 1980. I thought I'd been there long enough and a lot of people were telling me how good I was. And you begin to believe it and you think it's time for me to move to a bigger market. So John DeCamp, who was the play-by-play -play announcer for at Purdue for many years, an employee of Purdue, he knew a guy by the name of Lynn Davis at WGL Radio in 
Fort Wayne. A lot of the old timers probably remember him. It was an AM station. Lynn had been a sportscaster there for many years. John said, as I spoke to him for some insight, he said, I know a guy in Fort Wayne at WGO radio that's going to be retiring. He said, I think that would be a good radio station for you to make your next step to. And he said, I've known Lynn Davis for a long time. Well, that's all I needed. So I applied for the job and I got it. Lynn was also an advertising salesman. And I suddenly realized shortly after I was there, that was a bad decision. It was not a well-run radio station. And it actually was owned by uh, a lady whose last name was Frolinger. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. She owned the Fort Wayne News Sentinel and that radio station. So here, here was an eye opener. The first ad agency I called on, the gentleman said, I wanna tell you something, I've got some advice. The best thing that you could do right now for your career is leave that radio station. <laughs> <laughs> and I realized, God bless Lynn Davis, that what he told me that he billed every month wasn't on a sustaining basis. It started out at ground zero every month. And he had to hit the streets or rely on those people that he had built relationships with to get sales made, advertising sales made. And so I had gone to work there for $120 a week. And uh, I had to do uh, morning and afternoon sports and then a sales job. And I quickly realized, Lanny, you made a mistake. And this is what I'm getting to. If you wanted to do Purdue sports, why did, at this point in time, why did you go to a community that does not have a division one school? You just left a community that's got a division two school. So I resigned and I came back to Rensselaer and I was out of work for a period of time. And I thought, okay, I like sales because I was an advertising salesman at the Rensselaer radio station and a sportscaster. I like sales. Maybe I'd like to go into insurance sales or something related. And then I realized, no, I want to be in radio. But I had been out of work for about a couple months and uh, pretty well broke. And so I got a lead on a guy who was going to be part of a new ownership at a radio station in Lafayette. And uh, he was based in Minneapolis at that time. He want, I got a hold of him. I told him who I was. He said, well, I'll tell you, we've got this new operation. We've just bought this station. We're gonna, we're gonna change some things, but we need advertising sales. And he said, but I'm not gonna be there until we take over the ownership. He said, I'm a ham radio operator. And he said, I'm going to be at a ham fest in Dayton, Ohio, on this particular weekend coming up. He said, if you want to drive to Dayton, we can talk then. That was my option. So I took it. So I drove to Dayton, interviewed with the gentleman. He hired me. And in May of 1980, I went to work as a uh, morning news announcer and advertising salesman. 
that station did not do sports, but it got my foot in the door in Lafayette. And I was paid $125 a week. I was paid $75 a week to do the morning news Monday through Friday. And I was paid $50 a week to be an advertising salesman with no accounts, zero. And so uh, I survived. I was still commuting from Rensselaer. So I never actually moved to Lafayette until 1982. But I, I had some historical uh, record from doing sports at the Rensselaer station. And people in Lafayette knew me, the likes of Larry Clisby and Henry Rosenthal at WSK radio. So eventually they had an opening come up in November of 1981. And they reached out to me. And so I was only at this, the original station in Lafayette 18 months and I jumped to WSK and was glad to be there because WSK AM 1450 was renowned for doing high school sports. And a gentleman by the name of Harry Bradway, who was very well known in the state of Indiana and greater Lafayette, he was getting ready to retire in January of 82. So I was kind of an understudy with him in November and December of 81 and then jumped full-time into 82. And so uh, that's how it all played out. And uh, I have no regrets, but boy, you gotta pay your dues if you want it bad enough. It, and it, it took me a long time, but it, uh, I hope I'm not getting too windy here. Uh, but I thought, okay, I've got a good sales job. I'm gonna be the voice of Lafayette Jeff basketball and football uh, I'll have a nice gig for quite a few years so when I was there Don Lostutter was the head basketball coach Lostutter uh, is from Rushville had coached there I think he's retired and him and his wife, wife are back there now but I did the games when he was the head coach and then after doing the games about two or three years um Purdue revamped their broadcast uh, setup, and they had a net. Suddenly, they had a network, and so uh, the network was host communications out of Lexington, Kentucky. So their play-by-play -play announcer, they hired Kevin Calabro, who's an Indianapolis guy and a Butler grad, as the play-by-play -play announcer. And then Larry Clisby, who had been the color man with Henry Rosenthal on WSK 1450 doing the games, suddenly they, they didn't need WSK anymore. They had a network with host communications distributing the games to other cities throughout the state of Indiana. So Larry was the color man. Calabro was the play-by-play -play guy, but Kevin Calabro, his goal was to be a, an NBA play-by-play -play announcer. So he was using this as a stepping stone, rightfully so. So after one year, fortunately for him, he gets the play-by-play -play job for the Kansas City Kings, Kansas City Omaha Kings, as they were known back then. And he gets the play-by-play -play job. So Larry Clisby gets promoted to play-by-play. So Larry says to host communications, I know this guy who I worked with, who's an excellent broadcaster to his 
point of view and a good interviewer, I think you should cut, hire him to replace me uh, when I become the play-by-play -play announcer. So they did. They hired me, and so I became the play-by-play, -play, uh, play, the color announcer with Larry in the fall of 83, first season being 83, 84, and then did it until the fall of 1990. I did it seven years. I realized a dream, Billy. And, uh, you know, you can take it from there. I've spoken for quite a while. So, but, so, and I was still an advertising salesman. So I was doing these games, traveling with the team, getting home at two or three o'clock in the morning, selling advertising. And the one philosophy I always had, and I, I, I had the, the, the kiss of approval from our general manager, uh, Henry Rosenthal, to do this. But my sales manager always said, now remember, your first job is in advertising sales. Your second job is the Purdue job. So my philosophy always was I didn't want anybody on the sales staff to think I was being given favoritism. So if we got home from Michigan State or wherever at two or three o'clock in the morning, I darn well was going to be behind my desk at seven or seven thirty, so that when my colleagues walked in the office, having heard me the night before on the road, the first thing they saw me the next mor morning was going to be behind that desk. So that's pretty much how I how I did uh, both. And uh, if you got any questions from there, we can we can take off but i've been kind of windy on this no no this is this is what i do man i roll the dice and then you guys just i mean this is this is part of keeping the nostalgia alive no this is fantastic stuff and people are going to enjoy this so how do you do a pitch i mean a, as a, as a radio advertising i mean do you carry stats with you how did you sell yourself to get advertising for your station was that hard to do? Was that, you know, because you, because you have, you're looking forward to the next game and also this, at the same time, you don't want to look like you're, there's any favoritism, but how do you also focus on the, the ad side of it and, and what was kind of the beginning of your pitch and was it easy for you to get that? You mean when I was selling advertising? Yes. Yes. Well, I don't want to get ahead of myself either because uh, I, I do want to visit one thing here and that's, that's my experience of doing all those high school basketball games. And our sectional was always at Kankakee Valley. And that's where Gene Miller, Hall of Fame coach, got his start was at Kankakee Valley. But uh, my goal naturally, as I kind of got ahead of myself growing up, I wanted to do the Indiana High School State Basketball Tournament. So we can talk about that a little bit too, but uh, I was always self-motivated. Um, I liked the interaction. And when you're broke, you need to make a sale. So you work very hard at, at it. But I, I remember, like him or not, years ago, I heard Rush Limbaugh say, people ask me all the time about their children. What could I tell my child to develop, to be successful in life. And I heard Rush Limbaugh say, the best thing you can do is develop your ability to interact with people. And from the time that I was young into my adulthood uh, and in sales, I 
have had the ability to interact with people, but I developed it. Uh, the, the sound of your voice, I always say is very powerful for an individual. Uh, the inflection, um, it's like being on stage and for every action, you must have a reaction. So you gotta be thinking all the time. And uh, I, had a, I had a client tell me when I retired seven years ago, he said, the one thing I always liked about you, I always thought you were telling me the truth. What better compliment? So um, we sold, uh, we did at Rensselaer, we did, we covered about five or six. We had Rensselaer as our central school, and then we did the county schools. And um, so what you would do is, is if, 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 if you're going to do a North Newton game, then you paired them up with, let's say, South Newton or North Newton and West Central so that you could go to two communities and sell advertising for that game instead of just having one community. But uh, I think I had a, I had the motivation was the passion that I had for radio, for live sports in the area, and the want to do it. And I love to do it. And I want to be good at it. And I want to develop my skills. And so, we even did, we did the football in the fall. We did spring high school baseball. And I wouldn't stop at that. I didn't want that season to end at, at the sectional. So the station that I worked at in Rensselaer, we did the regional at Lafayette Loeb Stadium. We did the semi-state at Lafayette Loeb Stadium. And I sold the state championship at Bush Stadium in Indianapolis. Remember some great teams with, uh, Laporte, Evansville, among others. So uh, I didn't want to just stop at the sectional championship. It was through my motivation, so to speak, that uh, I took the initiative. Sometimes at my own expense, you didn't always get, um, you know, fees given back to you. I wanted to do it. Our audience loved it. They appreciated it. And so uh, I'll never forget William, and I'm I'm getting away from uh, Billy. I'm sorry. Um, I'm getting away from what you asked about uh, Lafayette, but uh, but I had a desire when I grew up. I grew up watching Channel Six, the state championships, when they only did the sectional championship, the regional championship. They might do the semi-state afternoon and evening, and it was Tom Carnegie. Tony Hinkle and Herb Schwolmeyer. You probably remember all of them. The, the, all those guys, all the players, all the high school players that I watched when I was in school, all the college players, they're all my heroes. So I thought one day I want to broadcast the state high school basketball championship. Well, you remember back in the day, the one class system at Marcus Square Arena and Hinkle Fieldhouse before that, there every radio station from the north to the south 
did the state championships. So the first year that I applied, they said, we don't have any room for you. So I got shut out. So in 1977, I applied and I had a, I had a colleague who was my color man, but very good at play-by-play, -play, Bob Hayes, who's retired in Florida. They said, we got room for one person to do the 1977 state championship. So I had to tell Bob, you can't go with me. So that was tough. But I do remember 1977, sat on the baseline. Carmel won the state championship. But the highlight of my day was seated right next to me was the late Marv Bates. Marv out of Evansville was renowned, a Hall of Famer. He did the Evansville triplets, AAA baseball games live at home and recreation when they're on the road. And so I'm seated next to Marv Bates of all people. That was my highlight along with seeing, you know, East Chicago in that state championship as well, Carmel winning it. But uh, I'll never forget, as I become windy, Marv Bates was a one-man show, like I was that day. But he had done it before, and he knew, he knew how to quench himself during the broadcast and have it all set up. He was seated to my right. And before the game, he bought, the, he, he bought this large cup of soda or water, whatever it was, and was on the floor. And he had this long-stemmed makeshift straw that came out of the cup. He maneuvered it up through his sport coat, through his collar, open collar, to where it's right here to the right of his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so during the broadcast, he just quickly just leaned to his right and take a sip of water and keep on broadcasting the games. <laughs> I'll never forget that. But unfortunately, that fall, he perished with the University of Evansville in that plane crash. So that's my experience with Marv Bates. So then the following year, 1978, they accommodated us with two press passes and my good friend, Bob Hayes uh, was able to do the games with me. So, so that's, that's my exper experience with the state basketball championships. And uh, I, I'll say this to, to conclude on the question about advertising. When Her some of us would have coffee uh, every day, including Harry Bradway, who I had re replaced. And Harry, Harry was a, uh, he was a sports guy. He, want, he was in radio for sports and advertising was just secondary. But uh, he said to me one day in retirement, he said, you're a success, Lanny, because you worked at it. Most people don't work at it. It's just a stopgap in their working life. You want to be in radio, you want to be a successful advertiser, and you want to be the best at whatever you did. He said, you worked at it. He said, I didn't work at it. Now he had a great career, but that was the compliment that he paid me. So um, next question, Billy. Okay, so we're all, we get 
most of our likes based upon the geography of where we grew up. And it's interesting that you talked about beautiful Bush Stadium on 16th Street, home of the Indianapolis Indians. Uh, my uh, grandfather took me to about approximately 120, 130 games there from 1975 to 1986. And, you know, I got to watch some really good baseball. I got to see the uh, Cincinnati Reds come to town, the big red machine and play exhibition games. Um, I, I love that. So because of where I was geographically in Indiana, of course, I was a Cincinnati Reds fan. I, I want to know about how your love for the wet White Sox came about and how did you stay a fan through all of the hard times with the White Sox? Um, did you ever get a chance? I'm going to toss other things into this question. Did you ever get a chance to meet Tommy John while he was with the White Sox or even post White Sox? And were you kind of uh, at the pinnacle when the White Sox won the World Series in 2005? Uh, great question, Mr. Interviewer. See, that's the best compliment when you're interviewing somebody is when they say, great question. <laughs> that's when you want to stop and say, yes. <laughs> I, loved, I loved everything baseball. Uh, eat, sleep, and breathe baseball. I grew up on a farm a mile and a half north of my hometown. After lunch during the summertime, I would take my three-speed bicycle and I would drive all over town to see which lot my buddies were playing baseball. There were Reds fans, there were Cardinals fans, there were Cub fans, and there were White Sox fans. But like I told you, we were inf influenced by Chicago radio and TV, but television, WGN out of Chicago, they televised both the Cubs and the White Sox. And I liked them both. And then in 59, when I was 10 years old, the White Sox went to the World Series. And that really influenced me. Fast forwarding into the 60s, up until about 1969, the Cubs were uh, respectfully not very good. And I mean, you could shoot a cannon through Wrigley Field and not hit anybody. The crowds were so poor. The White Sox became very good in the 60s. So naturally, like any young person, I was influenced by winning and good players. And I listened to Bob Elson on uh, the radio uh, with Milo Hamilton, uh, Jack Brickhouse on WGN, uh, and so my allegiance became committed to the Chicago White Sox. And uh, my dad was a farmer, but he had a second job as a custodian at our Catholic church and school in Remington. And uh, my dad would never drive to Chicago. So this particular summer, after the White Sox had been to the World Series in 59, I'm gray on what year it specifically was, probably 60, 61, or 62. Our parish priest said, I'm going to take you and your mom and dad. We're going to go see the White Sox play, the Cleveland Indians. So I'm riding in the back seat, coming up from the south on the Dan Ryan, headed to Comiskey Park, and I'm looking at everything. 
and I'm thinking about what I'm about to experience. And I thought to myself, when I grow up, I am going to attend as many Chicago White Sox baseball games as possible. So uh, fast forwarding to 1970, I had a buddy and I, we went up to every Sunday doubleheader. White Sox were not very good. They lost 106 games that year. And because of that, crowds were down and we could go buy a ticket at the box office and sit right behind the Sox dugout for a Sunday doubleheader. So I thought to myself, boy, if the White Sox ever get good, you won't have these kind of seats. So in 1972, I bought a partial season ticket package. And as relationships develop, uh, we came to know some people who had better seats directly behind the White Sox dugout. And they said, how would you like to buy our Saturday and Sunday games? So that, that led to me buying and, and, and uh, my partner at that time, uh, there were four of us guys that went all the time by 1972. Um, we'd, we'd go to the games on Saturday and Sunday and just had so many great friendships. Fast forwarding, Billy, because I just had these partial season tickets participating with other people. When it came to the playoffs, I'd have to fend for tickets because the primary holders, they'd use the tickets. 2005, I say to my wife, as I had said many years before that, boy, I wish that I had a full season tickets. She says, why don't you do it? I didn't tell her what it was going to cost. I did it. I, I was introduced to a guy here in Lafayette at that time who was a fellow White Sox fan who could share in my expense. So to make a long story short, the very first year that I have season tickets to the White Sox is 2005 when they win the World Series. And I had great seats for every game. Um, I, kept, I kept pestering this season ticket rep and she kept telling me, well, we just don't have anything available. And I called her up just a few weeks before the start of the 2005 season. And I said, don't you have anything? She said, well, let me talk to my sales manager. Well, they had four seats. Um, there are uh, roughly 30 some rows in the lower level. We sat to the next to the last row in the lower level, right off the concourse, looking right down the first baseline. Uh, and so I bought them. And since then, now I'm on row 28. I look, I look right down behind the visitors on deck circle, right down the third baseline. And I've had those since 2005. So that's how my love for the White Sox uh, has developed. I have spoken with Tommy John. He actually was, the White Sox had a great season in 72. And he was a member of the White Sox in 71. And he was part of a trade where he went to the Dodgers and the White Sox uh, were able to acquire Richie Allen, Dick Allen. It was a, it was a multiple player deal. But uh, 
but we had an auto dealer here in Lafayette by the name of Don Trout and his brother Dizzy and Don. Dizzy was a, a former major league pitcher for the Detroit Tigers. Don Trout was younger than Dizzy, but they both grew up in Sandcut, Indiana, which is just outside of Terre Haute. And uh, Don had always known Tommy John. So I got to meet Tommy John through Don Trout more, more personally and actually have a nice colored autographed photo from Tommy John. And um, so that's my story with Tommy John and the Chicago White Sox. You know, but, uh, Tommy having 288 victories, second to Roger Clemens without being in the Indian or the uh, National Baseball Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, is kind of a, a shame. It really is, um, and I've heard it, and you've heard it said before. Your job, if you're on the community committee, is not to keep people out of the Hall of Fame; it's to get people into the Hall of Fame. There are others as well. Um, Harold Baines was just inducted into the Hall of Fame and a lot of people didn't think that he belonged in the Hall of Fame but if you look at his stats and what he has achieved he belongs in the Hall of Fame and others but uh, I love baseball so much and broadcasting um, I would take and I did the same thing for basketball and I learned this from my cousin who tutored me growing up I would take a blank white typewriter pad and if it was basketball i'd etch out a scorebook if it was baseball i'd etch out uh, a baseball scorebook and we had a two-story farm home and my brother had a bedroom with two windows that faced the south and he had a desk that sat right underneath those two windows so I would take this baseball spinner game that we had. You remember that? Yeah. Uh, that might predate you a little bit. But they had this baseball spinner game, and it might land on a base hit, and out, whatever. I would literally take uh, a typewriter pad, a pad, etch out a scorebook, and I would have uh, the Kansas City Athletics today taking on the Chicago White Sox, and I'd have the lineup of the players. And the game was played from this spinner. And I'd be looking out over this baseball field, which is nothing more than my mom's and dad's garden, through these two windows facing the south. Good afternoon, everyone, from Comiskey Park in Chicago. It's the Chicago White Sox today as they take on the Kansas City Athletics. And so you'd hit the spinner, ball one, hit the spinner, base hit to right field. One runner on. That brings up Jerry Lumpy. And so the rest is history. That's, that's what I did growing up. I love baseball. I, uh, when Glenn Rosenbaum, who uh, is from uh, Union Mills, Indiana, and uh, someone that you, you ought to interview sometime, uh, was the traveling secretary with the Chicago White Sox and a former Indianapolis Indian because he was a Chicago White Sox uh, farmhand and a pitcher. Um, when he retired as traveling secretary, he said, Lanny, and I was at one, the first radio station in Lafayette that I had uh, joined. He said, you ought to apply for my job as traveling secretary. And I thought, well, if I can't do the play-by-play -play of the Chicago White Sox, 
maybe I could be their traveling secretary. So I, I applied with Howard Pizer, who's still affiliated with the White Sox under Jerry Reinsdorf. Didn't get the job, but that was my shot, thanks to Glenn Rosenbaum. Um, don't think I'd have been very good at it anyway, but I tried. And uh, so that was my experience with, uh, you know, I did, I did radio, I did high school sports, I did St. Joseph College, I did Purdue and almost got in the door with the Chicago White Sox, but I love the Chicago White Sox. And I did a, again, I'm getting windy again, Billy, but I did, again, it was just something to, uh, to develop my, my skills and an avenue to sell advertising. Being in Rensselaer, I did a daily show called the Chicago Baseball Report. And so at my own expense, most of the time, and it was sponsored, I'd go to Cincinnati and I'd interview Champ Summers to be on my Chicago Baseball Report show, right? Uh, you mentioned uh, Ed Armbrister in an interview with uh, Sean Martin here recently. I interviewed Ed, Ed Armbrister when he was back with the uh, Indianapolis Indians coming down from the Reds. After that World Series, I believe, and maybe you remember this, when there was a controversial uh, attempted bunt that he was called out for interference. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. Um, and maybe you can describe it better, but, but my point in interviewing him was, that's Ed Armbrister. He was in the World Series, the Fall Classic last, last October. Here's my chance to ask him about that play. And all I remember about that interview, and I told you, I probably have it on a cassette somewhere in my sports room, is that he said by, by no means did he think he interviewed uh, or inter, uh, obstructed. But I got to tell you, being a, a Big Red Machine fan, you talk about the paths that we cross. And I apologize for being windy. But uh, there was 10 of us that used to take the Amtrak from Lafayette to Chicago every January for something called the Chicago Baseball Writers Diamond Dinner. And it was quite an affair. And it was held at various uh, nice hotels in Chicago. And this particular January, a number of the Cincinnati Reds from uh, their World Series championship season were going to be honored. So I had a friend of mine, he never knew a stranger. So we get, we had had a few beers. So my friend, Bruce, who never knew a stranger, we're going to take this elevator. And uh, joining us on this elevator was Lee McPhail, who at that time was like the president, I believe, of either the American or National League. And Lee's dad had been ill at that time. So Bruce just said, hi, Mr. McPhail, how you doing? How's your dad? Oh, thank you for asking. He enlightened us on how his dad was doing. And we rode the elevator purely by accident up to this floor, this banquet room, where it was a reception for all the notables that were going to be on that dossier that night, including many of these Cincinnati Reds players. And we got, you know, I was like, I was like Billy Powell. I just walked all walked up to all of them, interacted with them. I remember uh, Joe Morgan, Johnny Bench, among others. And that was just a, that was just a chance experience. And you would have loved to have been there. <laughs> 
You, you know, you, you, you kind of, uh, uh, you kind of uh, gave me a little butterflies in my stomach when you mentioned Champ Summers, you know, uh, Champ Summers, uh, Lynn Jones, Arturo DeFredis, you know, all those guys with the, I, I thought the 1977 Indianapolis Indians were the greatest thing on earth. Uh, and um, uh, uh, Champ Summers, uh, uh, box 23 right behind the Indianapolis Indians dugout is where we would sit. And, uh, oh, what a, and, you know, I had my excitement, uh, by, uh, uh, asking Hal Morris about his 1990, uh, you know, um, uh, world championship, uh, world series championship with the Cincinnati Reds. But, uh, uh, that, that, that's just awesome. Just the, the paths we cross, I, I, oh, that room would have been my heyday and to have a cell phone at that time would have been great. Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Is it? Yes. Yeah, and you know, the reason why I interviewed Champ Summers is because uh, he had been, I believe, uh, with the Chicago Cubs at one time and uh, maybe got traded to the Reds, and that's why he was with Indianapolis. But that was that was the tie-in, having him on this show. But you mentioned Lynn Jones. Now, didn't he later play for a, a number of baseball teams? Uh, yes, uh, including the, the Tigers, the Detroit Tigers. Okay, that that's, that's the Lynn Jones I'm thinking of. Well... Lynn Jones had a had an older brother who had played college baseball at Westminster in Pennsylvania. And my friend, George Wagner, who had been the St. Joseph College basketball coach, who I had mentioned earlier when I did their games coming from Earlham. George had been the baseball coach at Westminster as well. So he had coached Lynn Jones's brother. Now I'm name dropping, but there's, there's a motivation behind this. I had caught, no, I'm sorry. I had, I used to keep a, a box score book of every White Sox game I attended. And on this particular day, and I wish I had it in front of me, I have it, it's framed in my sports room. But on this particular day, the White Sox are gonna play the Kansas City Royals and uh, George Brett gets his 2500th hit on that day. So I denoted it on the program on this date, circled it, George Brett, 2500th major league hit. Fast forwarding a number of years, I'm sitting at home knowing I'm going to go to the White Sox Royals game that following Sunday. And he's at about 29.85. So I'm thinking, I'm going to take this program with me that I've had all these years with me to the ball game and see if I can get uh, an autograph of George Brett. Well, at this time, Lynn Jones was the first base coach for the Detroit Tigers. And so name dropping. I take this program and I go down to field level and I motion for him to come over. And I said, Lynn Jones, you don't know me from Adam, but I said, a good friend of mine coached your older brother at Westminster College. And I said, I have this program of a scorecard when George Brett got his 2500th hit. Could you take it into the clubhouse and have him autograph it? He says, well, I can try, but he says, I doubt that he will. So I handed him the program and off he goes. He comes back and he said he signed it. 
And he said he really enjoyed looking at that scorecard from the day that he got his 25th 100th hit. So Billy Powell, you mentioned Lynn Jones and there's my Lynn Jones story. See, see what happens? Yes. See? Yeah, and he got a hit that day. And I think it was like 2986 toward his 3000th. Now, unfortunately, that dry mark uh, has kind of faded a little bit, but, but I still got it signed by George Brett. Thanks to Lynn Jones. <laughs> Six degrees of separation. You got it. Okay. So, got- so, so my, my next question, of course, you know, since I've been doing this, I have, be- I have be- appreciated the game of basketball, loved all basketball. When I was growing up, Purdue sucked. Purdue was bad. You know, now, you know, since the past 10 years, I have looked back and I have an appreciation for everybody who's played for Purdue, coached for Purdue, uh, the current players. Now I got to uh, interview Brandon Brantley the other day. So, you know, I'm an Evansville fan. I'm an Indiana State fan. I graduated from Indiana State University in 1990. Um, So, you know, Notre Dame fan, Valparaiso fan, Butler fan, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, I look at everything now with appreciation. But you will see behind me the general, Bobby Knight. And can you tell us about that day in February of 1985, I think? Yes. Well, um, you know, I'll say this about Bobby Knight. Because my job with the Purdue Radio Network was to try to get what they called a pregame bite. In other words, during the course of the content of the pregame show, it was my responsibility to get an interview with the opposing coach. And uh, Bobby always had this problem with the media. He didn't think their questions were ever very good. And so I really did try to monitor the situation at that time and always come up with good questions. And so uh, sometimes he was willing, sometimes he was unwilling. Uh, Before I tell you about the chair story, one time at Assembly Hall, and it was very, we were on uh, Saturday. Uh Uh-oh, there you go, there you go, you're back. I got had an incoming call there for a second. Oh, okay, okay. See, and this is what happens when we do these kind of shows. I will try and edit that out, but go ahead. Well, it's kind of like it's kind of like I had the decline button. It's kind of like what Bobby Knight did to me once in a while. <laughs> but uh, on this particular day, uh, he said he comes in on Friday evening. Sole purpose is to just shake Gene Katie's hand and have have some small talk. And on this particular uh, incident, he said, sure, I'll be happy to talk with you. He said, do you see that curtain right over there? And and you see them exit and enter through that curtain when you see the games on uh, television. He said, I'll meet you over there in about 15 minutes. Okay. So I go over there and I'm waiting and I'm waiting, and I realize I'm going to be stood up. He never showed up. 
So that was one experience with him. Another experience was when his offense had really not been doing very well. And they had just come off a game, I think at Illinois, where the offense had failed them again. So I had built some questions, just two or three. You say that the offense, you know, is, is not playing very well. So I asked him some leading questions about what do you think specifically is failing in the offense? Uh, he said, you know, I'm paraphrasing. Sometimes it works and sometimes it don't. Okay, so I try again. I come back at him again with another question. Basically the same thing. And at some point, he pauses, slaps me on the shoulder and says, I'll see you later. Never did answer my question. Now, there were other times, though, very gracious. Uh, and usually when he was at Purdue, uh, for whatever reason, we used to have an afternoon luncheon the day of the games. And Gene Cady would leverage his relationship with Bobby to have him join him at these uh, luncheons to speak. And uh, he was very engaging. As you know, the crowd loved him. So after those, he was very consenting to do a nice interview. But you're asking about the chair game. Now, I'm going to tell you a story that I'll share with you and your viewers. And it could be right or it could be wrong. Uh, there could be his supporters who say you're completely off base, but I'm gonna tell you this story because I, I, I've shared it with very few. Uh, he had visited with Gene Cady and I always try to, I, I didn't stand next to both of them, but I always wanted to stand within ear's distance. And again, this is my story. So when they're done, I asked Gene Cady, what was he telling you? He seemed kind of upset and animated. Well, he said, you know, Bobby said he had not been very happy with the officiating leading up to, to today's game, tomorrow's game. So he gathered some tapes of games and he goes to the Big Ten office in Schaumburg, Illinois. Now I'm getting this from Gene who apparently got this from Bobby. And he wants to show these tapes to the uh, supervisor of officials, Bob Burson. And he goes up there and he's got his artillery. He's got all these tapes and he wants to show the officials imperfections, their shortcomings. And so he goes into the office and uh, Burson's uh, receptionist says, uh, do you have an appointment? No. He said, okay. She said, okay, one moment. She goes back, talks to Mr. Burson. He won't meet with you. He didn't give him a sitting. Wow. So if he drove up there, he drove back to Bloomington and didn't have the opportunity to vent. And that's what he was upset about. So that this is coming from what Gene told me. So that evening back in the 
hotel, I tell Larry Clisby, my broadcast partner, I said, Larry, I think something's going to happen tomorrow. And Larry will, Larry will confirm that I told him this. So the rest is history. Now, you're the first person with any notoriety and clout that I've ever shared this with. But at this point, it's like, hey, I'm retired, been retired seven years. Um, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. What was your relationship like with Coach Katie? How much, how much did you enjoy uh, uh, Coach Gene Katie? Uh, one of a kind. He gave Larry and I full access to every practice, every pregame breakfast, every pregame meal, every pregame meeting. He gave us, or his assistant coaches gave us a full scouting report of that day's game. And um, was I intimidated by his demeanor once in a while? Well, sure. I mean, like when you get home from uh, the great Alaska shootout at seven o'clock on a Monday morning and you got to play San Francisco state that night and you go into his office and we're all tired that afternoon, just prior to the game. And you do the pregame interview with Gene Katie and you realize once you get down to your broadcast point, it didn't tape. Oh, it didn't record, and that's that's the only time it happened. So he's tired. He's uh, short. But I got to approach him, and I said, I, I'm sorry. I'll make it quick, and so I had to redo it. So that was not a pleasant experience. But all in all, the very first year I do the Purdue games, Purdue wins the Big Ten championship. They tie Illinois. And Larry Clisby, this 83-84 season, Larry Clisby said, Lanny, do you realize how many guys worked their whole career and never win a champion, a Big Ten championship? And you, you as a broadcaster, you're part of a Big Ten championship the very first year. And he allowed us on our crew, broadcast crew to all have Big Ten championship rings, which wow. I still, yeah, still have today. But uh, I got a great, a great human interest story. Kirk Clawson, Batesville, Indiana. He was a member of the Indiana, Indiana High School All-Star team when he was a senior at Batesville. And he, he was a little older than most of the players on that team because he had gone on a, uh, a, a sabbatical with, uh, uh, with his church. And... So when he came back to Purdue, he was a little bit older, great guy, very mature, good personality, lovely parents. So Illinois had won on Saturday afternoon to clinch at least a tie for the Big Ten Championship. Purdue has to play at Minnesota on a CBS network game on Sunday afternoon, and we have to win to tie Illinois. And Kurt Clausen hits the two free throws to win it. So he's our player of the game on the post-game interview. And I will never forget this. This is the kind of person that 
Kirk Clausen was. And any broadcaster would ask this question. I said, Kurt, what were you thinking about when you walked up to the free throw line to shoot those free throws? He said, I looked into the stands and realized how pretty my mother was. Isn't that a great answer? Wow. Almost brings tears to your eyes, man. It does. Wow. Every time I tell it. <laughs> wow. Oh. You know, Sean, <laughs> Sean Martin told me, he said, you know, he's going to be a Jerry Hoover type, and you're going to probably have to do two or three shows. <laughs> you know, Jerry Hoover, uh, growing up in Remington High School, so let's see, in 63 or 4, I'd have been a freshman or sophomore. He coached DeMont High School in northern Jasper County to the sectional championship in 1964. Jerry Hoover did. And, um, of course, DeMont is now part of Kankakee Valley. And I just interacted to it with his son, Don Hoover, who a uh, very intelligent guy, professor at Western Michigan, who helped him on the Blackford staff and who is now the assistant coach helping out at Frontier High School in Brookston, Indiana, just north of West Lafayette. Yeah, so I just interacted with uh, Don this week to ask how Jerry was doing, and Jerry's fine. What a great guy he is. Have you had Jerry Hoover on? Uh, yes, I had to do uh, – we did three, three hours worth. I'll, 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 I'll share it on your timeline after we're done. But uh, he also has a son, John Hoover, who is the uh, – husband of uh, Jennifer Hoover, who's the head basketball, head girls basketball coach at Wake Forest. Well, I think John started out at Kankakee Valley and then wound up uh, transferring to Lafayette Jeff, I, I think. You're, I, you're, you're correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I remember. But, you know, uh, I wish Billy Powell, because keeping the nostalgia alive, there are coaches right now varsity basketball coaches in the state of Indiana that are young and I'm sure along with their players that don't know the history of Indiana high school basketball. And um, I think that's the first thing that a coach should do is sit down in a classroom with his players, girls or boys, either one and say, do you, I want you to learn a little bit about the history of this game and what it means to people like you and I and others before us. I'm looking at a book right now that's on my coffee table that was written by Herb Schwomeyer. He started in 1970 writing a book called Hoosier Hysteria, a history of Indian high school basketball. And he authored his last book, his ninth edition in 1997. And I can't begin to tell you, Billy, how thrilled I was the first time I met Herb Schwalmeyer. And at that time, he was the dean of men at Butler, and I was doing the St. Joe basketball games. And to go into Hankel Fieldhouse and to interview Herb Schwalmeyer at halftime. He officiated state championships. He broadcast state championships. He was a uh, a member, uh, a committee member of the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame, and you can go on and on and on and on. 
And th this book, I just was looking at it again, just full of information. Just, I love it. Um, and to think I did, uh, I did from 77 to about uh, 81 or two, a, a lot of great Indiana high school state basketball games, the final four and the championships, great players. Billy, I was seated courtside and Stacy Turan took that shot right in front of me to win that game for Broadwipple and beat Marion. And I have to tell you that Larry, what I remember more than anything is that Larry Little was the head coach at Marion at that time. And his assistant coach was Mike Lord, who had been an assistant coach at Hebron. And Hebron played in the Kankakee Valley sectional when I did those games. And I would go, uh, I spent a fair amount of time up in, in Lake County. And uh, I would go to the Hammond Civic Center on Friday nights to see Hammond Clark play and Larry Little was a head coach. So I had kind of an affinity and affection for Larry Little as he developed his career uh, winding up, but, but to my story. Yes, there was jubilation when Broad Ripple won that game, but knowing Larry Little and Mike Lord, I, I, their, their facial and body response when they lost that game, I felt so badly for them. And I feel so badly for anyone that experiences that. The emotion of sports, certainly winning is great, losing is not. I remember Jack Ford when he was the head coach at New Albany. He coached in my nearby area, Brook, which is now part of South Newton. But they were in the final four this particular year and I had uh, interviewed him and he, he, he did this every time you interviewed him, I found out. Before he would leave you, he would slap you on the shoulder and he said, I just want to tell you the only way to have fun in this game is winning. And that was his mantra. And that's the mantra of everybody. But that was an experience with, uh, with uh, Jack Ford. I remember doing the, the state championship with Vincennes and Gunnar Wyman. Orlando Gunnar Wyman. And he had already told the school system, I'm retiring at the end of this year. And to win the state championship, isn't that unbelievable? His last year. And then the guy who replaces him, Gene Miller, who has now won over 700 games as a varsity basketball coach at Kankakee Valley. I was there when he got the job at Kankakee Valley. And then he goes to Vincennes, Washington, Lafayette, Jeff. When he was still at Kankakee Valley, and I, I apologize for being windy, I got a hold of Joe Heath, who was the athletic director at that time. I said, Don, Don Lowstetter was leaving, I believe. And I said, I have a guy who I think you really ought to consider for the Lafayette Jeff basketball job, Gene Miller. And Joe Heath was a great guy, coach and AD at Jeff, class. He said, we just don't think that he's got enough experience at this point in time to coach Lafayette Jeff. Well, fast forwarding, he wound up at Lafayette Jeff. But, uh, you know, 
the paths that we cross. Um, I'll, I'll share, and if you want this to be the final story, the coach at Kankakee Valley at that time was Jack Helms. And mid-season, and I believe it was uh, 1975, Jack Helms was under a lot of pressure. The team wasn't performing like the constituents thought he should be. He resigned under pressure. So, uh, and now this is my story. They offered it to the uh, varsity assistant. He turned it down out of loyalty to Jack Helms. They offered it to the JV coach. And I'm going to say he turned it down out of loyalty to Jack Helms. Their last option was Gene Miller, who was the freshman coach. Sat on the bench with the team for their varsity games, but he was the freshman coach. He took the job and won the 75 sectional at Kankakee Valley. And the rest is history. That was many games before his total now of 722 or whatever it is. In 1984, I think he was with Vincent's Lincoln, correct? I believe so. Yeah. So we traveled a lot. I, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't know if that was an AD's decision, uh, coach Bill Smith's decision, love him or hate him, rest in peace. Uh, but we took a, I think Vincent's Lincoln went, went to the final four in 84, 84, 85 or 83, 84, whichever. And we traveled down to Vincent's Lincoln. I got to go to the Adams Coliseum and their advantage at the Adams Coliseum is the opposing team sits at the end of the, uh, uh, of the basketball court, which I couldn't stand. Anderson Highland also did that. And so uh, like a sponge. And what I'm doing now, you know, we went down there and weren't a very good team. We were six and 14 for the year, but we beat a ranked Vincennes Lincoln team coached by Gene Miller in, in, uh, uh, at the Adams Coliseum. And that's one of the things that just six degrees of separation and what my mind soaks up and what my mind soaked up during those four years at Broder. Gene Miller grew up in a town of Goodland, Indiana, which is seven miles from Remington. And South Newton High School is where he graduated from. Later went to Wabash College. Um, but uh, I actually went to Vincennes Junior College when they were just starting their radio broadcast program. And I found it to be in its infancy and didn't offer me a lot. And uh, I got all the experience I ever needed in the six years I was at the Rensselaer radio station, which was known as WJCK radio. But, uh, but I never saw a game. I never saw a high school game at Vincennes. Our junior college team, as you know, at Vincennes was renowned coached by Bradford. Uh, and uh, I can't think of his first name right now, but then again, the guy that took over from him is in the Indiana high school basketball hall of fame too. And uh, we just had uh great teams at Vincennes and there wasn't a lot to do at Vincennes University but to go to the basketball games in the wintertime we had a well I'll tell you who the, the best player on that team was uh, 
it was just before uh, the guy that played with the Los Angeles Lakers, but Oscar Evans and, and Dave Holt out of uh, Indianapolis Tech were two of the players that played at Vincennes. And then we had a real good player out of Shelbyville by the name of uh, Bob Adkins. And his son, Brady, was an outstanding player at Morristown. So as I continue the name drop, the paths that we cross. So anyway, that's my story. That's my Bobby Knight story, chair throwing story. I'm sticking to it. Okay, so is Morristown, let me name drop here, is Morristown home of the Copper Kettle? That I don't know. Okay, okay. Um, so I'm going to ask this. I, I, I think we need to do a part two. Oh, really? Yeah. I was windier than you? Well, you're so close to the Windy City. It's, it was okay for you to be windy. Yeah, I've had a lot of great experiences in the Windy City, but today's a great experience too. But I got I to gotta ask you before we leave today, because... I'm old and I might forget the next time we do one of these. Um, who has been your most favorite? Someone who maybe you also had a little anxiety over that turned out to be much better than you ever anticipated. Oh, man. Well, now you can say good question. That's okay. <laughs> nah, yeah, that is a good question because it's making me ponder. Um, let me tell you this first. In 2016, I got a phone call from Dave Shellhouse, All-American at Purdue. Coach Number 42. Yes, yes. And he said, look, I got a deal for you. Um, I have final four tickets. If you put me up at your house, I'll give you the final four tickets and we go to the final four. So I basically, my wife said, yes, we had, he came down. It was a great visit. We went to the, um, uh, media day beforehand. I got to meet Gene Katie. I got an autograph from Gene Katie. Um, I got to meet just all kinds of people. I got advice from coach Shellhouse intimidating at first, but very knowledgeable, very um, encyclopedia, very something that I can go back to. Um, so I had anxiety about that. The only really one that I had anxiety about was Wayne Boltinghouse. And I don't know why, but it turned out to be a, a fabulous interview. These interviews you know, I love to document the past so the future can remember. But, you know, uh, Gene Tormolin, bumper. Yes. I got to interview him and he's passed away. So to have, and then there's a couple of interviews. Um, uh, the gentleman who uh, uh, won a state championship for Pike, two state championships, his name's not coming up to my mind, but he passed away quickly uh, or just recently in the past couple of years. I got him on tape. So this leads into a question to you on what you're doing now with your, um, you know, travel and land show is that, you know, you get these people on tape recorded so that this history can be passed down or maybe one day online, there's a, uh, a basketball 101, 201, 301, like college for these uh, Indiana high school basketball athletes to watch. So 
I don't know if that answered your question. Well, I'll tell you, you touched base on uh, part of the reasons why I do this. I do this as much for their families, for preservation. And you just struck a nerve and I'm glad I'm not going to omit it. I always wanted to be a play-by-play -play announcer. And then I began to be intrigued by interviewing. I wanted to learn a little bit more about that athlete or coach beyond what we see superficially. I wanted my audience to have the experience with me to learn more about that person, what makes them tick. And I, I think what also you touched upon is the personal gratification that you have experienced from what you've done. And I can tell you on a smaller scale, <clears throat> I had set out at one time, and I've done quite a bit on the history of Remington High School basketball. And I'll bet you've gotten similar response. I've called old gents now vacationing, some deceased now, at their winter home in Florida, long since removed from when they played in the 20s or 30s or 40s. And <clears throat> I will thank them <clears throat> and tell them how much it meant to me to speak with them today. And if you can envision an old person sitting in their lounge chair, looking out the window, reminiscing about their life and experiences, and how many of them told me, I can't begin to tell you how much your call today meant to me. There you go. That's it. I made their day. Shouldn't we all <laughs> somebody's day? Yes. And that was a fun thing that I did yesterday. I, I, somehow some way through brian williamson who played at indiana state university and dennis andrews i found out that harley and arley are still alive harley and arley andrews they're 86 years old uh they said they'd be up to doing a show i called yesterday i think i called harley i get them confused but so did officials <laughs> yeah yes they did there's a great story about that and <laughs> and and his wife answered the phone and this so this is dennis is andrew's dad and i think it's harley and uh, his wife answers the phone he gives me the phone he says uh i'm so grateful that you called you know we'll do it in a couple weeks after this covid thing calms down and i i wanted to be a little bit uh uh you know okay, I'll, I'll get with your, your son and we'll get back together. But, but I am grateful for your call and I have a lot of things to tell you. So 86 years old. Yeah. So that, you know, and I know that's really silly and small, but it, you know, made his day. And at the same time gave me gratification that I made his day. I believe Howard Sharp was the head coach, wasn't he at that time? Uh, yes. Uh, both of them out of Gershmeyer where uh, uh, Bobby Leonard went. Um, <clears throat> and Tommy John very late in his coaching career, Lafayette Jeff played at Terre Haute. Uh, I think it was Terre Haute North probably or South. They only had two schools that time, but Howard Sharp was the coach. And so I interviewed him 
visited with him and uh, interviewed him uh, on tape and used it at halftime as well. Um, he was a classic. <laughs> you know, as many, there are, there have been, I've often wondered about this, Billy. What makes up the personality of a coach? <laughs> and, uh, and what dresses them in such a fashion, figuratively speaking, that they become a classic? Howard Sharp would be a classic, among others. <laughs> uh, so, so that leads me, okay, one, let me ask a couple more questions. I know we're running long, but uh, I'm having fun. I hope you're okay with it. Sure. Okay. So my first question, have you talked to or know Coach Jack Butcher from Lagodi? Have not. Okay. Okay. Then that leads me to my next question is, out of your vast career, fantastic career, what you wanted to do, what you love to do, who are two or three people that you met that made an impression on you or you thought if I wasn't doing this, I wouldn't have met this guy, got this guy's uh, uh, comment or, you know, you, you know where I'm going. Now that's a very good question. <laughs> wow. Well, um, the list is long. The experiences are deep. Um, the, the interesting thing is to me to have a preconceived opinion of who you think someone is like, and then to have that changed from a personal experience and interview. Um, golly, there, there have been so many, um, I remember interviewing a, the coach at Delphi one time. I, his last name was Jones. I'm going to say Jim Jones was the head coach at Delphi at this time. And it's the Lafayette sectional, and I'm interviewing him for a pregame show. Now, these are the things that impress me. Kind of like what Kurt Clausen said after he made those free throws. I looked into the stands and realized how beautiful my mother looked. But... I'm doing a pregame interview with the coach at Delphi, uh, Jim or Gene Jones, Jim Jones. He stops me because maybe we'd gone a little bit long. He said, can we stop? Pardon me. He said, there's a woman up there. I want to tell I love her. Um, high school coaches, you know, uh, my time up around the region, guys who you uh, have an opinion of because they grew up in Lake County. They are some of the nicest, most gracious people. Uh, Ron Heflin at Gary Roosevelt. I wish people knew the history of, of Gary Roosevelt High School. What a, what a tremendous school. But that's going off in another direction. Um, the, the, the two experiences, uh, two or three, going beyond the, the uh, and above the call of duty. Uh, when Bill Frieder was at Michigan, he was much maligned. 
And yet, uh, I remember when the three amigos, Stevens, uh, Mitchell, and Lewis, we had an afternoon game on ABC with Michigan at Ann Arbor. And uh, I did a pregame bite and was going to supposed to do this with Bill Frieder. And whatever happened, something happened. Bill could not accommodate me. So we are now only minutes before game time. We haven't taken the air yet. Teams are out on the floor. Bill Frieder comes down from his bench, seeks me out, apologized, and he said, I'd be happy to do that interview right now. Wow. Not anything that you would have ever thought Bill Frieder would have done because he had this negative persona as the head coach at uh, Michigan. A similar thing happened to with Lute Olson when we were at the Great Alaska Shootout. He was a coach of Arizona at that time. And they, they were going to have a shoot around and what have you, and he was going to accommodate me. And it, it didn't happen. Now, he didn't have to do this. He knew the hotel I was staying at, Anchorage. Phone rings in my hotel room. It's Lute Olson. He said, I'd be happy to meet up with you and do that interview. How many coaches would do that? How many coaches would do that? Generally, they just blow the media off. So that always impressed me. Um, just, just incredible experiences. Um, I got a great Johnny Wooden story. I have to share that for you another time because I'm sure you're, you're going long here. But those are the two guys, Lute Olson and Bill Frieder. But Gene Cady was always accommodating always and i remember i don't know uh if you remember uh, when i grew up the only games the only big 10 games on saturday afternoon was a big 10 game of the week and i think the guy's uh name uh that did the play-by-play -play was bill bill berg or something like that but anyway uh to suddenly be doing the purdue games and going into Jenison Fieldhouse at Michigan State. An arena that you had seen on TV when you were a little boy. Going to Williams Arena, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you still there? Yeah. My caller's persistent. <laughs> Must be me calling me. But, uh, but going to Williams Arena. Uh, going to St. John Arena at Ohio State, watching Purdue, good teams, Terry Dishinger, Indiana as well at that time, Walt Bellamy, Jimmy Rail, but they were matched up against Jerry Lucas and the Ohio State Buckeyes. And to walk into St. John Arena, I have a lot of respect for the history, the coaches, the players, and uh, I remember when we we beat um, Michigan State at Jensen Fieldhouse, and Herb Robinson, who was from East Lansing, he had a game of his career. But but to beat Judd Heathcote and Michigan State at Michigan State, we came, we got on that team bus, and Larry and I, Clisby, we were so excited. 
jubilation. And uh, the following Sunday on his weekly show, Gene Cady said to Larry, he said, I think you guys were more excited getting on that bus than my players were. But, but I always tell people winning on, and I've experienced it, winning on the road is the best feeling in the world because you have so many things against you. Winning against Judd Heathcote at Jenison Fieldhouse is the greatest feeling in the world. Uh, a gymnasium that I grew up respecting. Um, I just voice love the game. Really, really have. Really appreciate what you do today. You know, I, I want to close on this because I know you do too. Um, people don't attend basketball games like they used to, but I'll tell you when I want when I read from the blog sites on Facebook and others, the post from the legions of fans that these schools have, boy, there are still a lot of rabid basketball fans out there. A lot of rabid of Indiana high school basketball fans. Thanks to people like you and others who would administrate to these sites, like Sean Martin, who you just had on. I can't imagine, I said to him a few days ago, I can't imagine having a playbook with 50 plays in it, 50 plays. I couldn't memorize one. I bet today's players don't have, a, a, and coaches don't have 50 plays. They all run the same thing as I ramble. Are we no, done yet? <laughs> no rambling whatsoever. I have just a couple other things and then we'll close. Uh-oh, two so, more. Yes. So tell me how you got into the travel and, the, the, uh, travel and land show. Um, tell people where they can get it. How do you pick your guests? But let's rewind. Let's rewind. Let's rewind. How did you calm yourself or prepare for your, your interviews, your pregame interviews, be it uh, Big Ten, be it how you do now? H how would you calm yourself? Or would it be through research or through your passion of the game or would it be would would you count the three or would you think of uh, would you think of uh, someone who's beautiful in your life like Kirk Clausen? well I think you have to be prepared and you have to do your homework and I love doing that I don't like I don't like being ill-prepared I probably overly prepare uh the traveling land show came about from the fact that the term traveling man he's a traveling man I don't know why I didn't use this before, but suddenly I came up with traveling land, traveling man. But uh, how it came about, and it's kind of been suspended since the, the pandemic. Uh, Greg Rakestraw reached out to me one day and he said, I got an idea that I'd like to run by you. Can I stop and see you? And so he stopped at our farm here east of Lafayette and he said I got an idea would you be willing to do an interview show of this nature and I thought am I I'm in retirement and um, I do have some anxiety and worry about these things because I want to I want I'm not a perfectionist but I want them to be right I don't want them to be sloppy 
And so I just said, well, I'll think about it. And I put it off. And then my, my good friend, Larry Clisby was taken with cancer. And he was in Florida at the time. And he was gonna be coming back for the uh, alumni game. <clears throat> so I hadn't seen him for a while and he was still in, in pretty good health. And I thought this would be a softball for Lanny to do because I know him so well. So I got a hold of uh, Greg and Larry didn't even know what the ISC Sports Network was. ISC literally does not stand for anything. I tried to figure it out for a long time, but Greg has reassured me. It's kind of like traveling land. I don't stand. ISC stands for nothing. It's just three letters that they chose. <laughs> and so Larry said, yeah, I'll do it. And I said, well, let's do it in my sports room. So we did it. So I did one. Went pretty well. So then I did, I did one with Bud Wright football coach at uh, Sheridan, people, people ought to be recognized. Viewers and listeners ought to be familiar with the records that they have achieved and their background. Uh, so then it was Dick Atha had been a longtime friend of mine, purely through the sports arena. And I had always asked him, Dick, you ought to do a book not interested in doing a book what if i sat down with you and helped you write one not interested well i thought i'm gonna ask him if he at least do an interview with me and it was great so that's how that came about his family loved it and they now have it for prosperity so the next one was jan connor and uh, she couldn't have been more engaging and uh, so on and on and on. I, I, I did a great one that's a potential interview with you and a gentleman by the name of Clifford Robinson. Clifford Robinson was basically the first or maybe second African-American to ever graduate from St. Joseph College, 1957. But he graduated from Crispus Attucks in 1953. I'm gonna fast forward when he's teaching at the uh, public grade schools in Indianapolis. He coached George McGinnis, Ralph Taylor. Um, the, this was when they were like, let's say public school number five. What a, what a library of knowledge he is at his advanced age. And uh, Marv Winkler, and that his name that played at uh, Washington and played with the Milwaukee Bucks. Yes. Um, he coached all those guys in grade school and they're all his friends. Halle Bryant, good friend of his. And he was, and has raised a wonderful family with a son that has autism that he still takes care of. Clifford Robinson, great guy. Have you interviewed Ralph Taylor? Ralph, I have. I have. Good guy. Yes. Well, you you reach out to Ralph Taylor because they they communicate a lot. Uh, you, so you know it, it. You know it's very interesting. I went to school number two, number fifty five, and number fifty nine. And this let me tell you a quick story. So 
eighth grade. I'm at school 59. So six degrees of separation. The principal of school 59 was Jesse Lynch, who was the first black official to officiate a state basketball finals. And that was Anderson versus Connorsville coached by Basil and Bobby in 1983. Yes. So, so I had that in my hat running around like a, a 12 or 13 year old, not knowing what I was going to do in life. So my uh, counselor, you have to meet with your uh, counselor on what you're going to do when you go to high school. So I was, you know, uh, I had to go to broader high school because that's where I was, uh, what district I was in. So I walk into this guy's office and I sit down and he puts a cigarette out in his drawer and shuts his drawer. So there's a waft of smoke that comes up and little did I know, but that was Bill Scott who played at Crispus Attics. I think he played at Butler, but just the, just, I mean, just, just talking to you brings up these stories of the six degrees of separation. And I don't know why I just said all that, but it's been said. Well, um, when I was growing up, Crispus Attics was having that great run in the fifties. And, you know, you didn't have the media exposure that these kids have today. The first time you got to see these individuals and their teams and coaches, i.e. Ray Crow, Indianapolis Christmas Addicts, was on Channel 6 for the sectional championship, the regional championship, et cetera, et cetera. Clifford Robinson knows all of them. What a wonderful person. And he graduated from St. Joseph College in Rensselaer, Indiana. And when uh, they, they won one of the state championships, um, he was still in school at St. Joe and he hitchhiked to Indianapolis to see the games. He was, he was very close with Ray Crow. He was a freshman coach during Ray Crow's, uh, later in Ray Crow's career there. But, uh, but that's a, that's a, that would be a great interview. You know, have we gone long, Mr. Powell? Yes, we have, sir. If I know I got to go to the bathroom. I know you got to go to the bathroom with you. I don't know if you had one of those straws that you told me the story about at the beginning. I haven't seen that, uh, but um, maybe we can go back and forth online. Uh, maybe I, I have your phone number also, but maybe we can do a part two. Lanny Sego, thank you so much for all of your time. Guys, please go to, which evidently means nothing, the iscsportsnetwork.com. You can catch all of uh, uh, Lanny's interviews and subscribe to uh, to that channel at that website. But Lanny, thank you so much. Uh, I, I It's nice meeting you. Uh, I did not, like you told us earlier in the interview, I did, know, did not know what to expect. This was fantastic. I love it. Uh, I will pull it dear to my heart. Well, it's great to exceed our expectations, huh? <laughs> And I think everybody have a blast. Okay, so uh, if you're watching this, you're watching this on the Keeping the Nostalgia Live YouTube channel, or you're listening to it, because I'm going to pull the audio on keepingthenostalgialive.podbean.com. Go over and subscribe to both guys. And Lanny Siegel, thank you once again for all of your time. This was great. Hey, you're doing a great job. And I, I appreciate and respect what you do. <laughs>